All right, so we are continuing on in our discussion on the seven bold judgments. Last week we looked at the first five of those bold judgments, those bold judgments which we believe mark the interadvental period. By interadvent, we mean the period between the two advents, the first coming and second coming of Christ. And we looked at how those five bold judgments um, are reflective of judgments that are occurring throughout this age that have been happening, continue to happen, and are still happening and will happen up until the end of the age. Tonight, though, we look to the sixth bold judgment. The sixth bold judgment will bring us to the very end of history, that closing portion of the age uh, that will, will really begin to resonate, that final portion of human history, which will end with the seventh bowl, which is the coming of the Lord to usher in judgment, to gather his people, and to bring final and full salvation. Now, tonight, as we get to the sixth bowl, we will see the culmination of that end of the age. This gathering of the last battle, a battle which has been given the name Armageddon. And we'll talk about what that means. And, and, and this discussion tonight is one that has both, uh, you know, fascinated both the most religious of minds as well as the most secular of minds. And, and one of the things that I've just noted throughout history is that when the world latches onto something or specific interpretations of things, it's a, probably a good estimation it's wrong. Um, and so when the world tries to interpret uh, Armageddon for us, whether it's via a Bruce Willis film or anything like that, it's probably good that we know what it means as opposed to the way the world uh, can Hollywoodize it. Um, and so we get this picture of the last battle. Now, we will not actually see what occurs in the battle. Rather, what John does here is he brings us, or I should say the Holy Spirit through John, brings John to the very Im uh, image of what the battle will be. He prepares the battle, he sets the stage for the battle, but he doesn't give us the details yet. He won't tell us what happens. In other words, he, he kind of leaves us hanging, and, and he's done this throughout to keep us gripped, to keep us locked in. But as we will begin to see in Revelation 17 through 19, uh, we will see exactly what happens during this battle. And it will not go well for the world as they will be utterly defeated by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, who comes to save and redeem his bride, who the world, unified, has now turned against. So with that picture of this last battle, a last battle which four of the six cycles kind of give us pictures of or recapitulations of, Revelation 11, 7 through 10, Revelation 16, which we'll look at tonight, Revelation 19, 11, and then again in Revelation 20, 7 through 10. We will see this last battle recapitulated and pictured um, throughout. So let's look at it now, Revelation 16, verses 12 through 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty." Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. So the first thing that we get in verse 12 is a bit of a summary statement, kind of a statement that just explains what happens with the outpouring of the sixth bowl. So we read verse 12, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And so this the little summary text tells us what the bowl does, drying up the river Euphrates, and why it does it, so that the kings from the east can gather together. We'll see in a moment in the end. This is for battle. This is to come against the people of God. Now, this parallels exactly 
what we saw with the sixth trumpet. I'll just take you back there real fast. You don't have to turn, but, but Revelation 9, 13 through 14. This is what we saw with the sixth trumpet. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And I heard their number. Talks about a battle and, and raising up horses. But, but notice, you see the, the Euphrates there. You see demonic hordes going out over the nations to gather for battle. And this is precisely what we see here in the sixth bowl. Meaning that the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl parallel one another. They are meant to be seen as similar in the same events working together to give us greater description. And all the sixth bowl does is it escalates and intensifies what the sixth trumpet gave us. So why the Euphrates? Is this a picture that the literal Euphrates is going to dry up? Well, there, there are some who believe that. But I think, once again, to take these these, these signs and these apocalyptic imageries as literal is to really do a great disservice to the genre itself. It's apocalyptic, it's symbolic. So we need to ask ourselves, what does the Euphrates symbolize? What, what was it to a Hebrew reader, to a Christian reader? What would they have understood it as in this period? Well, the Euphrates was the northeastern, the northernmost and easternmost boundary of Israel. And during this time, it was the northern and easternmost boundary of Rome. So this was the natural border that protected from invaders. In other words, it was one area where they didn't really have to worry about putting together a guard because it was a place that enemies could not naturally pass. Genesis 15, 18. This is a God's covenant promise to Abraham regarding the land he would give him. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Deuteronomy 1, 7. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites, to all the neighbors in Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowlands, in Negev and by the seacoast the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. The Euphrates, fascinatingly enough, was the, was the way in which both the Assyrians and the Babylonians crossed in order to conquer Israel. And so this was the place of which their enemies would come from. Israel's enemies would come from the north and the east. And they would come and they would ransack Israel. And so any time that a, a reader who would have been uh, acquainted with the Old Testament writings would have heard of the Euphrates and, and it being dried up, it would have given them a clear picture of the coming of enemies, the, the coming of enemies to sweep them away, to, to carry them away, to, to attack them. And this would have even been accustomed to the, their Greek hearers, the Roman hearers, because just to the east of the Euphrates was the Parthians. And the Parthians were this barbarous tribe that would constantly inflict great damage and havoc on Rome, on the eastern portion of the empire. There was actually a belief at this time by the cult of Nero that Nero was going to come back to life. Uh, it was, it's called Neronis Redivivus, uh, the, the myth, which is that Nero would be reincarnated born again, and come back. And there, there are many who believe that a lot of that idea is kind of behind some of the things in Revelation. But the idea was that Nero would come back to life and lead the Parthians across the Euphrates to basically wipe out the church that he believed was marked his downfall. Now, I don't think that that is the case here, but all of this would speak to the fears of the people, the reality that where the enemy is, the river will be removed any barrier that would keep them at stake will be taken away and they will be able to cross freely to attack the people. It said that it, as it was poured out on the river, the Euphrates was dried up completely. 
In the Old Testament, God drains and dries up rivers or bodies of water for two reasons. One, for deliverance. The other, for judgment. For deliverance and for judgment. And I would argue that the sixth bowl judgment here with the Euphrates drying up is symbolic of both. Both deliverance and both judgment. We all know some of those deliverance. For instance, in Exodus 14, who crosses on absolutely dry ground? The Israelites out of Egypt. They cross through the Red Sea. Literally, it is dried up completely. In Joshua chapter 3, the Israelites cross the what? The River Jordan on completely dry ground. So both of those are pictures of God's deliverance. But they are also pictures of God's judgment. The prophet Jeremiah was prophesying against Babylon, against the wickedness of Babylon. And this is what he would say. Jeremiah 50, verse 38, A drought against her, that they might be dried up, for it is a land of images, and they are mad over idols. And who would God use to judge Babylon? You might know. Starts with a C. King Cyrus of the Medo-Persians. God used the Persians to judge Babylon. And where does Cyrus come from? The east. And what did God draw up, dry up to destroy Babylon so that Cyrus could get there to defeat them? The Euphrates. Listen to this. Isaiah, verse 44 through 26 to 28. The prophecy concerning Cyrus's coming to defeat Babylon. Who confirms the word of his servant? And who fulfills the counsel of his messengers? Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited? And the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers? Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd? And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and the temple of your foundation shall be laid. In Isaiah 41, verse 2, it said that Cyrus and his princes would come from the east. Verse 25 of Isaiah 41, they would come from the rising of the sun. God raised up Cyrus to be the means by which he destroyed Babylon. And the way that he did it was by drying up the river Euphrates, raising up kings from the east, bringing them over, in order that they would destroy Babylon. In other words, what God did with Cyrus in destroying Babylon, he is now doing now to destroy the world system of Babylon once and for all. Drying up all impediments that the nations might gather and and go after their dark ambitions There will be nothing that will keep them back. That's the picture of the Euphrates. There will be nothing that keeps them from assaulting God's people, for going after them. And it will be precisely in their full-on assault of God's people that God will bring them to utter destruction. They are going to destroy, but little do they know it's going to be themselves. They think they're going to destroy God's people. And it looks like they're going to. All impediments in the world will be removed. A system will be developed where all of the leaders of the nations will be freely given over to go after the church, to root out the church, to murder the church, to kill the church. And just when it looks like it's the darkest hour, God's saying, I'm literally setting the trap by which they will be utterly destroyed. What were the Babylonians doing? Babylonians doing when Cyrus was just outside their gate? They're partying. Remember the writing on the wall, Daniel chapter five. They they're they're in their party. They're celebrating. It's all good. Little did they know they're about to absolutely get utterly destroyed. They thought they were good. They thought they were victorious. They thought they had won, and their destruction was literally on the door. And that's where we get the whole 
analogy, the writing on the wall. And this here is a picture for the church to say, don't miss the writing on the wall. Don't miss the writing on the wall. Just as he had destroyed Babylon in history, he will, bab- he will destroy the latter-day Babylon, the world system, similarly. He will prepare the way for the kings of the east. Once again, pictures of, of Cyrus. Now, was Cyrus just some wonderful, glorious leader? No. He's a wicked ruler too. And yet God used that wicked ruler to what? To do what? To establish his people. To rebuild their nation. To bring restoration and security. And that's exactly what God's doing once again. He's using evil rulers to come against his people thinking that what they are doing is for themselves and their own glory just to what will ultimately be to their own demise. Cyrus would be judged as well by God. And the Medo-Persians with empire would collapse as well. Just like this one will. You see, the kings of the east here represent the leaders of the kingdoms of the world who will have become disenchanted with the worldly system. The world will be falling apart around them. Why? Because of those temporal judgments we looked at last week. The world will be falling apart. And the world system, these rulers of the world, these leaders of the world... All of the restraint that they currently have held against them from just totally going after and assaulting the people of God, God will remove in this hour. And these people will absolutely hate the system that they belong to. So they will try to create a one world system, a new world system, by which they gather all of themselves together. They are unified on this purpose. And the only thing left for them to do to create their own perpetual new heavens and earth is to remove their one dissenting group. They're one restraint, and it will be God's people. I'll give you a picture of this. We'll see this in the chapter to come. Revelation 17, verse 16 through 18. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Notice these kings hate the prostitute. They hate this worldly system of what it's become. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Literally, do you see what's happening here? God is putting within them a dissatisfaction for the worldly system and giving them a desire to try and purify the world. And their answer for doing that will be to give power to the beast. To give power to the Antichrist system and to gather themselves in full unification. It says, verse 18, And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So you see here is that the world system is going to go into almost just collapse because of its judgment. And in order to try and renew it and bring a new heaven and new earth in their mind, they will be taught by the beast that the answer is to give the power to him, to unify their power and to give it over to him. To come into this system, whatever that may look like. But there's one group that's still in the way. And they're the reason for all of our problems. And we got to get rid of them. And that's the church. And the reason why this is so important is because this is precisely what the first beast did himself, Nero. Nero was absolutely dissatisfied with the rule of Rome. He was dissatisfied that he was not able to build the things that he wanted quickly enough to get the pleasures and leisure houses and prostitution homes and all the things that he he desperately wanted there. So what did he do? In his anger over the system, he set the city to fire. And when they they said, who did this? Who did he blame? The Christians. And it launched the first full persecution of the church. He was angered at the system. So he tried to burn the system down. And then when the world looked for someone to blame, he blamed the Christians. And he said, they're the ones who need to be eradicated. And it launched the full-fledged persecution of the church. And that's a picture of what's to come. When the world is angered over everything it is, it will look for someone to blame. Do you not already see that? Do you not already see how quick... Leaders are to try to point one side as an antichrist, as the, they're the problem, they're the reason. 
And eventually they will be unified in this. There will be no political Euphrates anymore to hold them back. They will be unified in their desire to destroy, to hurt, to harm the people of God. But little do these leaders know that in their unified effort to destroy, they are actually being drawn together by God in judgment to be destroyed themselves. The drying up of the Euphrates is a picture of the preparation for the great deliverance of God's people and the great judgment of the nations. This picture is that God is removing the boundary. He is removing that which impedes the enemies to come against God's people, which is currently being restrained and constrained. In in Revelation 20, where it talks about how Satan has been bound from deceiving the nations, that's the picture here. Not that he isn't working or active, but that he can't deceive the nations. But in the end, God will unbind him and allow him to do this. But to do this is for the purpose of judgment. That it is precisely as the world seeks to gather against God's people, when it looks at its darkest, that what will be the darkest moment of the history of the church will also be the brightest moment of its final deliverance. That's remarkable. That what man means for the utmost evil, God will mean for good. And so now, in verses 13 and 14, we see how these nations are going to be gathered. What in the world is going to cause it to where all of these leaders of the world are just going to want to turn against the church, to want to turn against God's people? And we see precisely how it's going to be done. Verse 13 through 14. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. So the first image we are given is we're given back those three groupings that we saw back in Revelation 12 and 13, right? This picture of the unholy or the false trinity. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. These three that we've already been introduced to here. And it says that they, right out of their mouth, will come three frogs, which are demonic demonic spirits, which will go about to the kings of the nations to gather them for battle. So here you have the unholy trinity, right, at work, building its own army, its own ecclesia, gathering. And it does so through deceit, through signs, through um, false prophecy. That is to say, this system will be inherently a religious one. It will come with signs, it will come with a religious hand, it will come with a fervor that really is unmatched as opposed to its one dissident, which is the church. It's one opponent, the church. I like this picture of frogs, right? Because once again, we see the Exodus theme. This is the second plague. The second plague was frogs were released into Egypt. Exodus chapter 8, verse 1 through 5. Now, why are frogs chosen here? I often wondered what that picture is. Um, and it's pretty fascinating because I think the reason why the frogs are chosen is because along with the serpent, it is one of only two of the plagues that the Egyptian sorcerers were able to mimic. They too were able to produce frogs and create frogs through demonic power. And so the reason why I think that this is used, it's because it's going to denote just how deceptive the power will be. That it will be real, demonic, it will move people to mimic the true Trinity, the true God. Also, we think about the way in which frogs in Leviticus 11 are considered unclean animals. And so obviously we know from our viewpoint of how that's changed in Christ, nevertheless, in that system, in a Hebraic system, the, the frogs would have been seen as unclean, a, a picture of their demonic status here in this plague vision. Also, uh, what's fascinating is 
uh, reading some of the Talmudic language and some of the rabbinical interpretations of the, the frog plagues is that the, the croaking of the frog uh, actually produces confusion. It produces uh, this, this croaking, this loud sound that, that, is, that is harsh to the ears and, and you, there's no escape from it, yet it's this loud noise, but ultimately it has no substance. There's no substance to a croak. And really, this is the same way with this false teaching. It is loud. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. But it's ultimately substantiveless. It's, it's, it's weak and skim. It's superficial. But it will be a means by which confusion is created. And many are led astray. We are told that these spirits, that there will be signs performed. And this is precisely what the New Testament teaches about the, the last days of the last days. That there will be great signs performed in this wicked system that causes many to go and to be moved by it, to be led astray, to be deceived. Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, Mark chapter 13, verse 19 through 22. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. And for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. In other words, no matter how bad it may look, God is so merciful because He stopped it at exactly the hour to ensure that not one of His own would be lost. That's amazing. That's a great promise. Verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. In other words, look for the writing on the wall. The, the, these signs, they will be abundant. And it will be, I mean, it, it, it's not going to be like some like thing where you're just like, ah, that, that seems pretty sketchy. It's going to be things that you literally can't explain. And there will be no explanation for it because they will be, from every point of view, miraculous. But the power behind them will be demonic. And the reason that we can know, because here's the clear thing, how can we know whether or not a sign is of God or if it is of devil? The question is, is who does it point you to? Who does it point you to? If it points you to men, it's of the devil. If it's about puffing up a preaching empire, it's of the devil. There is no doubt when a sign, a miracle comes from God because He'll be all over it. His glory will be all over it and it will be all directed towards Him. Everyone else involved in the miracle will disappear into the glory of God in the sense of that's where your mind's going to go. That's when you know it's from it. Notice every time you see a, a, a God-wrought miracle in the Scriptures, all that happens is praise. There's no like, And any time that men start trying to go after Paul or Peter for doing it, there's unbelievable rebuke. There's not, oh, you know, thanks. You know, I, I've been working on it. You know, I'm, I'm just, God bless you. I'm, I'm trying. No, it's rebuke. Don't you dare worship me. Don't you dare praise me. This is God who did it. That's when you know. But these signs, they will be miraculous. It will seem as God has did it. But who will get the praise? It will be men. It will be the beast. It will be the dragon. It will not be God. But it will be deceptive. Paul also gets to the heart of this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which really gives a good key on what we're seeing here in Revelation 16. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through, or 2 3 through 12. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So we'll stop there right there. So when it says, unless the rebellion comes first, what's that a picture of? It's a picture of the Euphrates being taken away. It's a picture of the boundary being removed. When God removes his restraining hand, 
In Revelation 20, it will be when he loosens Satan from his chains. That's when the rebellion happens, right at the end of the age. And notice, the man of lawlessness, the beast, he exalts himself. And the religious system that the false prophet builds around him will seek to exalt him as well. Whether it's a, a single person or a system, it will seek to exalt it. So the religious system will be a state church system that seeks to exalt that political state. Verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Who's restraining him now? God is. God's restraining him now. Verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Bowls 1 through 5. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Spoiler alert. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So notice, he's going to come with power, he's going to come with signs, and those who do not love the truth, they're going to go hook, line, and sinker after him. And as one final act of judgment, this is what God does. And this is what we've seen in Revelation uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. Therefore... God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, because they refused to repent, remember, fifth bowl, they did not repent of their deeds. God in judgment will give them over to the ultimate delusion where they will fully embrace the beast and his system and become an enemy against his church and in doing so, seal their fate for all eternity when he comes and destroys them by the fire of his mouth. God sends them a delusion that they may believe what is false. That is the culminating picture of judgment. God gives them over. He gives them over. Not to do something they couldn't do before. God gave them over to what they were already doing. Believing what was false. That's the penultimate judgment. When God gives you over to false belief. When He gives you over to your depravity. That's the penultimate judgment. It says that these frogs and their deception, these demonic spirits as they are hopping out among the nations, that they are going to the kings of the world to gather them into this this culminating deception. And we see this very clearly. Revelation 17 through 19 really expounds on this latter portion here. Revelation 17, 2. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Verse 12 and 13 of Revelation 17. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Verse 18, and the women that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And so these kings are these representational leaders of the world that have been gathered underneath the authority of the beast. And so they give their authority over, right? The, the world will look like it is in a, an ultimate crisis. And because of that, the leaders will say, we need to give our authority over emergency powers over to this specific authority, whether it be an individual or just a system that's been collectively put together by the world leaders. They will do this as a means of saying, this is the way for world security. And if you think that that's going to be difficult, you're fooling yourself. We saw about how easy it was. Just let one little pandemic go through. And I'm not saying little because it wasn't bad. It was bad. And a lot of people lost their, li- their lives there. So I'm not in any way undermining the pandemic. I'm simply by saying little. I just mean one pandemic 
And the world totally changed. That quick. We're ready to throw away every right. Because here's the truth. When it comes down to security and freedom, people will overwhelmingly choose security. Overwhelmingly. Because security, it becomes the object of worship. As long as my family's eating, as long as I got a roof over my head, hey, they got public radio and public television on. Just sit in your house quietly and be, be quiet. We'll make sure that you get a paycheck each week. Your lights are going to stay on. We'll give you a coupon for a Chick-fil-A sandwich. But stay there, be happy, and we'll take care of you. I promise you right now, 85% of the world would go foot hand and say, all right, where do I sign up? Because when it comes between security and freedom, people overwhelmingly choose security. And the beast will play on that full and full, and the false prophet will make it an object of worship throughout the people in that, that latter day period to come. And why does he seek to gather the kings, to go to the kings to deceive them? To assemble them for battle. They need to be deceived to turn their sword on the church. To torn their powers on the church. They, were, they need to be deceived to believe that the people of God are the problem. They are the last thing standing in the way from creating our eternal Babel. From creating our own new heaven and new earth. They are the last thing that stands in the way. And they need to go. They need to go. They need to go. You see... What the unholy trinity is doing, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, is just trying to mimic what the true trinity is. The true trinity has come to redeem, restore, and bring retribution to the world in a new heavens and new earth. And the only way that can happen, though, is by the complete riddance of sin and Satan and evil. The dragon, Satan, seeks to do the same thing. To create his own new heaven and earth. But to do so, he has to rid the world of righteousness. And that's going to be the battle line. The battle line is between the righteous and the wicked. Between Christ and the Antichrist, in a sense. But the, the goal is the same. Why? Because just like from the beginning, the serpent has wanted to be God. So he tries to mimic his own plan. The enemy is just a different one. We are his enemy. To assemble them for battle. This last day's battle here, this battle between the culmination of wickedness and righteousness is portrayed a, a number of times uh, in the Old Testament. But the most clear example of it is the prophecies of Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog and Magog. And you're going to see that language a lot throughout the rest of Revelation. Gog and Magog. And Gog and Magog are these apocalyptic, prophetic nations, collections of nations that are coming against the people of God. And they will be utterly destroyed by Israel's Messiah. By the Son of Man, the Anointed One. By God Himself. I want you to just hear this. Ezekiel 38, 1-16. Hear this as I'm reading it and think about what we've seen here in the discussion of Revelation 16. Ezekiel 38, 1-16. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face towards Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O God, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out. And all of your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full army, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth to Garmin, from the uttermost parts of the north where all his hordes, many peoples are with you. Be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. 
After many days you will be mustered in the latter years. You will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely all of them. You will advance coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the people quietly who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates to seize spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell at the center of the earth, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, thus says the Lord God, On that day, when my people are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when when through you, O Gog, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. What you're seeing in that prophecy, in language that would have been accustomed to them, referring to the local nations around them, the the ones that had been enemies to them time and time again, is merely a, a foreshadow of what is being revealed here in Revelation 16. Do you see the language in this text? I am going to put a hook in your mouth. It's God saying this to the nations, to God. I'm going to lead you against my people who dwell securely. I love that. There's so many descriptions of the church in here that I love. One, my people who dwell securely. Meaning, you you are secure in Christ. I hope you know that today. Like, you're secure. You are sealed and established. But I also love this statement about them. It says they are a people without walls, without limits, without boundaries. The reason why I like that is because what that tells me is that this people, this Israel of God, is not an established nation state. It is a people without walls. And that's what causes the world to think it actually has a chance. This isn't a nation state. These are just people living in our villages, in our cities, in our our communities. They don't have a a, a leadership, a senate, a prime minister. There'll be nothing to take out. I love that description though. We are people without walls. And God, how often we build them up. Man, we build up walls. When we are a people who have brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia and Latin America and South America, everywhere. God's people are like Joseph's coat of many colors. Beautiful and blessed. What a wonderful picture. And yet, God will come storming against it. These gathered nations, all of the peoples will come against it thinking they're going to have an easy route. They're going to have it easy. They're going to go right through them. And I love what the Lord says to God. A picture of the nations. May God will be the same. I have brought you against them to show my holiness to the nations. Why do you think God chooses it to do this way? We talked about this last week. When God chooses to do something, the first answer always for why God does something, His glory. And the reason why you may think, well, this seems like a big deal. You're going to bring up all the nations against us. It's going to look like it's crushing us and beating us. Why would Jesus wait till he gets to that point? Why would he wait till he gets to its darkest hour? It's because when things are the darkest, the light is most clearly seen. 
Think about when you go to the jeweler and they take that diamond out for the, when you get your wife's engagement ring for the first time or the, her necklace or her earrings and they hold it against that piece of black velvet. Why? Because left to itself, the diamond's pretty. But when it's held against the contrast, all of it pops. The light hits it in a different way. And its glory is seen like never before without that contrast. And that's exactly what this day will be like. It is against the darkest backdrop that the glories and power of the Almighty will be seen in a way like never before. And the bride of Christ will behold their night of heaven coming to rescue them once and for all. What a beautiful picture. Revelation 19, 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10. When the thousand years are ended, we'll talk about what that is, a picture of the interadvental age. Satan will be released from his prison. His restraint will be taken. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Yes, the day looks dark. The battle we are going, it will be an outnumbering like never before seen. But when God's on your side, you're never outnumbered. When Christ is on your side, you're never outnumbered. And that is such a blessing to the saints. This day will be the great day of God Almighty. Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord. A picture seen in Joel chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great, for He executes His word as powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Zechariah chapter 12, verse 8 and 9. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Israel. Zephaniah 3, 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather the nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. This is the great day of the Almighty. When He comes out in full glory to save His bride from the dragon. That's why every fairy tale story you've ever heard, where do you think that comes from? It comes from this. The knight that comes and rescues his bride from the, the dragon-surrounded castle. He has to slay the dragon to capture his bride. Where does all of those wonderful fairy tales find their origin? From the truth of what Christ has come to do and will come to do in glory. But before he launches the final preparation place, I love this. We get one of those third beatitudes, the third, three of seven beatitudes that we get in Revelation. He gives this little interjection, quick interjection, because it seems really bad. It's like, oh, this sounds terrible. God gives a sweet little beatitude for his people in the midst of it. Verse 15, he gives a promise to the prepared. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This little parenthetical exhortation that John gives here is addressed to believers. And the voice is exhorting us to be vigilant and prepared for when Christ comes. To be awake, to be ready, to have seen the writing on the wall. He says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. How many times did Christ say that, right? I'm coming like a thief in the night. All of his parables are around that concept of his coming like a thief in the night. That is to say, you won't know it. You, you won't be ready. It'll, be, it'll come quick with haste out of nowhere. 
So are you going to be vigilant, on guard, prepared, awake, ready? 1 Thessalonians 5.2 For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Revelation 3.3 Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. There will be a suddenness to the coming. There will be a quickness, a a haste to it like a thief in the night. And what God's people are called to do are to be prepared, to be ready at any time. Because it could come any time. It could come at any time. Christ is faithful. And when the last of His people are gathered, He's going to come. He will not tarry any longer when the fullness of His sheep has been brought in. He will not tarry. But when the fullness of His people are gathered, He will come. Like a thief in the night. And blessed is the one who stays awake. The picture here is that of a a diligent and faithful soldier on the watch. You don't sleep on the watch. You don't sleep on the watch. Matthew 24, 43. But know this. That if a master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Luke 12, 39-40, Jesus said, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would would not have let his house be broken too. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Brothers and sisters, this is the only kind of woke you need to be. You need to be ready for the Lord. You need to be awake and vigilant, a prepared people. Faithful soldiers standing on the watch. And you know what would happen? What was one of the penalties for a soldier that was found sleeping on the watch? He would be stripped of his clothes and paraded in public to be exposed and to have shame brought upon him. Should we be shocked then what John says next? When he says, blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Why? Because he's been found awake, not asleep. He's been found ready. Like the parable of the ten virgins, he's been found with oil in his lamp. He's found ready. She's found ready. Revelation 3, 4, and 5 Jesus said to the church at Sardis, You still have a few names in Sardis, people who do not have, that have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Keep your garments on so that you may not be caught naked and be exposed. A soldier, there's a twofold meaning really in this statement. Not only is it one that if a soldier were caught asleep, he would be punished for not being awake, not being vigilant. He would be exposed and be ashamed. But there's another meaning behind this as well. When would a soldier take off his clothes and his uniform? When he goes to sleep. When he goes to bed. And there's actually a deeper picture here when it talks about shame because that that wouldn't be shameful just to take your armor off to go to sleep. The shame picture here is not that this person has merely taken off their armor to go to bed. It's that they've taken off their armor to go to bed with Babylon. They've gone to bed with the world. And that's how they're found. Their bridegroom who's been away at a battle for them, comes to capture his bride. And those who claim to be his bride are in the bed with another lover. That's the picture. That's the shame. For all of those who professed with their mouth, but their heart was far from him. 
spiritual adulterers. And they are found exposed and shamed. John gets this language from Ezekiel 16, 1636-39. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure. All those you loved and all those you hated, I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands and they shall throw you down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. I believe that when the Lord comes to protect and gather His bride, there will be quite a few who will be very sad when they're not taken with Him. And their nakedness and their shame will be exposed on that day. When their bride says, I'm not here for you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And they will be exposed before their lovers. In bed with the world. I like this picture here real fast because this goes right along with what Freddie, Pastor Freddie taught on this morning. It says, Uncovered your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them. Who are you giving your children to? Are you giving them to the world? Are you putting them in bed with the world? Are you giving them to the Lord? Will you call them after His name? Or send them to the world for training? Oh, may the blood of our children not be upon us. Because we decided to give them to the world. We are called to be vigilant, to be awake, to be ready, because He can come at any time. We are to see the writing of the wall on the world around us. And as the world grows darker, we should grow all the more hopeful. We shouldn't grow pessimistic and afraid. We grow all the more hopeful because we know the victory. We know the victory. We know the victory. And we live in light of the victory. No matter what the world does against us, we hold fast to our children. No matter what the world says of us, we stand firm and vigilant as faithful soldiers will watch at the wall, waiting to see our king coming over the hill. Finally, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Here we pick back and back in verse 14 where they are gathered for battle at the place called Armageddon. The outcome of the war is described in chapter 17, 19, and 20 where the forces of the dragon are, and the beast are portrayed as utterly defeated by Christ. And the place where the battle is to be fought is called Armageddon. And just like the other names, Babylon, Euphrates, Armageddon it is symbolic. It's a symbolic name. And, and the reason why we know it's symbolic is from the name itself. Uh, the, the Hebrew word Har Megiddon it literally means Mount of Megiddo. And it tells you that's symbolic because there isn't a Mount of Megiddo. Megiddo is a plain. It's not literal. There is no such thing as Mount Megiddo. So don't try to pull out a map and look for this. It's symbolic. It's very important that we understand then, well, what does Megiddo symbolize? And when we understand what it symbolizes, we understand why it's called this. You see, Megiddo first is where the nations that came against Israel were swept away by God. In Judges chapter 4, verse 7, when Sisera and the nations come against Israel, come against Deborah and Barak and Israel, we read, I will draw out Sisera. God says, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Javan's army, to meet you by the river Kashan with his chariots and troops, and I will give him into your hand. Well, that didn't seem very fitting until we realized that the rivers of Kashan are also called the waters of Megiddo. 
Listen to what Deborah sings after Sisera has been defeated in the nations. Judges chapter 5, verse 21. Deborah's song. The kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, march on my soul with might. So Megiddo is where the nations were swept away by God as they came against Israel. Megiddo is also the valley, the waters, where Elijah had the false prophets killed. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 40, And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon, the waters of Megiddo, and had them slaughtered there. Who's going to be slaughtered at this battle? The false prophet. The wicked system. Megiddo is also where King Josiah died when he would not heed the word of God. 2 Chronicles 35, verse 20 through 24. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight Carchemish on the Euphrates. Hmm. And Josiah went out to meet him. But he sent envoys to him saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I'm not coming against you this day, but against the house of which I'm at war. And God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God who's with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archer shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. And servants took him out of the chariot and carried him to a second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem, where he died. Josiah went to Megiddo to fight and was was mortally wounded there. Why? Because he would not heed the word of God. So Megiddo is where kings go when they don't heed the word of God to die. Lastly, Megiddo is where the wicked nations will behold the Lord in his return and mourn over their rejection of him and his judgment of them. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9 through 11. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadam Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. In other words, what Zechariah says, on the plain of Megiddo, There will be shouts and tears of joy and tears of judgment. This is why the gathering place is described as Harmageddon. Not because there's going to just be this army. We're all going to be gathered into this little tiny plain and all the armies around us are there. We're just in the Middle East somewhere. Like I don't even know how I got here, but this is crazy. That's not what it's going to be. The reason why the last battle is called Armageddon is because what Megiddo represents Megiddo represents that place where God sweeps away his enemy. It represents that where God kills false prophets. It's where there where God slays kings who do not heed his word. And it is there of a place of, of deliverance and judgment. More importantly, Mount Megiddo, when, when you actually look at the Greek translation of it, it can mean mount of assemblies. And that really is what the last battle is. It is the battle of two ecclesias. The gathering of the Lord against the gathering of the world. And the gathering of the world will be utterly destroyed on that day. Brothers and sisters, Armageddon is not something to chew your fingernails over. It is not something to live in fear about. It is not something to try and and picture out the exact spot where it's going to happen. Armageddon is not a word for fear. It is a word of hope. A word that says, God wins. Christ wins. 
And if we are to be there on that day, we will behold the victory of the Lord. That's what it's all about. Yes, the nations will gather. But in the darkest hour, the brightest light will come forth. And his name is Jesus. There's so much we could take away from here. And I'm not going to go because we've already gone over time. But this text really demonstrates three things. First, the power of demonic deception. It's real. You are in a spiritual battle. Be vigilant, soldiers. Be on watch. Be girded with armor, soldiers. Secondly, God is absolutely sovereign over evil. If you don't get that from this text, you're just not going to get it. God is absolutely in control of all of this. He's gathering the nations. He's moving the people, putting hooks in noses and mouths and grabbing them and moving them, sending up a spirit so that they're deceived in their heart. God's doing it. So even when it looks like it's all gone to hell, God's in control. The control room is still in heaven when the world looks like hell. Don't ever lose sight where the control room is. Even when it looks like hell, heaven's in control. And lastly, stand fast in the knowledge of Christ's sure victory. He wins. He wins. I'm just going to close with this word. Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called chosen and faithful. So go be that this week. What child will you be? Chosen and faithful. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for this time together. We thank you for the reality of being able to see the writing on the wall and not having to live with an ounce of fear in us. Of knowing that you are. Your victory is sure and steadfast. That you are absolutely, overwhelmingly, utterly sovereign over the enemy. That there is nothing, there is no part of, of, of anything, of any darkness in this world that you do not have a perfect sovereign plan and purpose for, God. So even when we can't see it or understand, let us trust you, God. Let us look to your word and see the hope that is in it, God. Call us to be awake, be vigilant, be prepared, and to live as your people in this world, chosen and faithful, watchmen on the wall, ready and looking for our king to return over the hill. God, let our hearts constantly be set on that. So that even in the darkest hours of our own life, your light will continue to shine in our hearts. A light which is found alone in the victory of Jesus. Let us look to him so that no matter what the world may bring against us, we know that we are never outnumbered with Christ on our side. What a hope. What a victory. Let us live in light of it this week as chosen and faithful people. In your name we pray. Amen.